Welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. I'm Nick Richardson, and as usual, our special guest is Dr. Michael Liffman. In the first of our podcasts for 2020, so allow me to offer a belated Happy New Year to you, Michael. Thank you, Nick. Happy New Year to you and anyone who happens to be listening. Excellent. Thank you. So one of the things, of course, that's been in the news so much and has been uh, such a devastating start to 2020 has been the bushfires across Australia. The outpouring of generosity from so many Australians has been extraordinarily extensive and deep and impressive. What does that tell us, do you think, about the generosity of our countrymen and women? Well, it is, as you say, extraordinarily impressive and heartening, Nick, and it's, um, it, I guess it's the good news in a strange sort of way to have come out of this. Um, that and this sort of sense of community, community building, um, that uh, was obviously in evidence. So let's take what small bit of good news we can find in this and, and, and develop it. So Australians, it would seem, further evident by, by the last few weeks, are very spontaneous givers. There's a very strong sense that they, they see a problem, they feel the need to respond, they do that, and then they move on. Implicit in that is that they want to know that their donation is going to the right people and getting to where it should go. Do you think we have realistic expectations of how those donations will be used and and implemented? Well, I think that sort of impulsive generosity um, is almost contrary to the, the ability or the opportunity to be strategic and think long term, and that's that's just inherent in the nature of disasters and the way we respond to disasters. Um, I suspect that, in a sense, it's a return, a bit of a return to a form of giving that I think we were slightly moving away from over recent years. I think, particularly among the younger generation, millennials, and the people who have done well financially through their business or through their entrepreneurial lives, there's been an increasing tendency to be more strategic about one's giving and to try and frame one's giving in an investment. Uh, an investment approach which is more particular about what outcomes you want, how you're going to achieve them, what the reciprocity is, and in some instances that investment approach actually entails getting a financial return as well as a social good. Um, and that I think reflects the generation and one strand of what's shaping our way of thinking about the world. Uh, the other one, the impulse to be generous, has always been there. It's a very commendable thing. It's probably a very Australian thing. We saw it with Bali. We saw it with um, the tsunami, and we're mm. seeing it again. And it's it's terrific. But maybe there is some way of harnessing those two, or getting a bit bit more um, uh, commonality between the two, and, and maximising the benefit. So one of the things that we've seen most recently in relation to all of this is the critiques emerging around the way that charities supposedly uh, have not been uh, more instantaneous in passing on uh, the money that's been donated. 
It strikes me that that's really an unrealistic expectation about how quickly we can address these particular disasters and how quickly we can actually deliver some support on the ground. Is that a fair assessment? I think it is, and I think it's, I think it's a bit unfair to criticise the charities that haven't immediately spent the money, partly because it's just not possible to do that in a coordinated, strategic, sensible way in such a short term time, and partly also because I think we've learned from past disasters that you really do need to factor in the short-term and the mid-term and the long-term needs. I recall well, and I'm sure many other people do too, it was either the tsunami or the or the bar, I'm not sure which, but it doesn't matter. Um, the Red Cross received a lot of money from very generous Australians and uh, was hammered on 60 minutes for not having immediately spent it all, for still having money that was, was, was not being spent. And I think it was um, Martin Letts at the time, the CEO, offered the defence that um, they realised that there are going to be long-term needs, that there are going to be children who lost limbs in the earthquake and who will need new prosthetics in five or ten years' time. And um, the Red Cross was aware of this and was keeping money aside for that. Or kids who will need scholarships to go to university in 20 years' time or whatever. And I think it's it's wise to factor those sorts of needs into one's thinking and not think that it all has to be spent at once. And we've been told... Um, uh, that even by the, the charities themselves we were told towards the, in the last few weeks that please don't give us more goods because we don't need them. Mm. There are some charities that receive far more money than they're able to spend because their mandate doesn't allow it to be spent on things other than firefighting equipment or whatever and there's a limit to how much of that you can use. So does that mean in a sense that we probably don't actually understand particularly well how our charities work, especially how they respond to emergency or disaster situations? I think possibly we don't. We, it, it, it arises out of our impulse to try and solve an immediate problem and relieve immediate distress. And Which is an, an admirable impulse. Absolutely. But it does take me to, to the thought, and it's not one that I've thought through at all, um, we are, as we experience more disasters, we see more attempts to coordinate some sort of disaster plan for a future disaster, whether that's usually about physical infrastructure, mm. firefighting services and where you deploy people and, and all that. And I wonder whether we should apply that sort of thinking to a sort of social support infrastructure so that the next time there is some sort of disaster, there is some sort of you know, rough notional plan or blueprint or strategy which says, there will be a whole range of needs. There will be homes that need to be rebuilt. There will be people who need income support. Um, there will be people who need long-term medical care. There will be people who need support for their children, etc. And whether the, the sort of plan can be devised that says, depending on where your interest is, whether your interest is in immediate relief or in health care or in something longer term, there are particular funds or particular NGOs which focus on that so that you can be a bit more both strategic but also align your own giving with your own impulses to where you want that to go. So that rather than whatever the extraordinary amount that Celeste... Barber. Barber, I'm sorry, I mm. keep forgetting mm. that name. Mm. That she got most of which I think went to the New South Wales Fire Fund mm. Service Order, mm. which is not able to be spent. You can actually target your money to a particular issue that concerns you to the, and to an agency that makes that its priority and that has a plan for distributing the money accordingly. 
So do you think Australians actually are interested enough to be able to say, I want this to go to the salvos, I want this to go to the fire service, and I want this to go to the mental health providers on the ground? Or do we actually want to put it into a larger bucket and allow someone else to make that decision for us? I guess there'll be both. There'll be some that mm. say, this is too hard for me, but I trust this large bucket and that's mm. where my money goes. But there'll be lots of others who say, look, I would have been pleased to be able to be more targeted in my giving, particularly having read that the last disaster wasn't as strategic as it could have been. So I, th I think I think both should be available. But I certainly think that if some sort of social infrastructure disaster plan were developed and received a bit of publicity and promoted in such a way that it wasn't too complex or difficult for people to understand, I think people would respond to it. You mentioned a key word here, and this is a question without notice, I'm uh, happy to say. Um, and the key word there is trust. How important is that trust when I'm giving to the decision I make about where that gift goes? I th yes, I think trust is a, a fairly soft sort of approach. There's a, there are, we're fairly uncritical about our trust with regard to the non-government sector, and that's probably a good thing. Um, but um, some, sometimes I guess trust is the default position rather than a, a confident position. In other words, people are not saying, I really know such and such an agency, the Red Cross, and I'm, I know why I trust it. Some people, some, I mean, that's one way of approaching it. I think sometimes I don't know about any of these agencies, but this one sounds good, so I'll trust it by default rather than because I really know about it. And mm. that's that's not unreasonable. Um, but I think it, uh, if one can, if the organisation, the purpose of one's giving can be closer to one's own concerns, then perhaps there is more engagement and a, a better basis for the trust. So what we've seen in recent days about the some of the criticism, some of it quite misplaced, but does that have an impact on those charities for future donations, do you think? One would hope so. I recall again during one of those early disasters being very impressed with um, uh, Medicines on Frontier, mm. Doctors Without Borders. It's the only one of those major development organisations that I recall saying, don't give us any more money because we cannot spend it. Mm. Um, now, I, I would have great trust in an organisation that was prepared to say that, or in an organisation that said, look, you know, we're not able to spend the money the way you would like us to because our mandate or our expertise is somewhere else. So I think, I think the trust can be built up in that way. It's not a matter of trust as against uh, dishonesty or something dodgy. It's a matter of trust in terms of better focus for what's being done and how the money is being spent. So is that why you had greater trust in in the Doctors Without Borders, because they were honest about what Absolutely. their requirements? Absolutely, yes. And that they couldn't spend more money because of whatever infrastructure or other limitations they had. It strikes me that part of the issue here has been the amazing response, and I think it might well have caught several charities certainly by surprise at, the, at that very spontaneous and extensive um, outpouring by Australians. Do charities themselves perhaps need to be a bit more prepared in that sense? Well, we certainly don't want 
Are there to be any sort of counter reaction to what's happened this time? It mm. would be terrible if the next time a need arises, people say, "Oh well, I'm not going to give because you see what happened last time." Mm. That would really be unfortunate. So mm. that's probably why, if there can be a genuine development of understanding as to some sort of assurance that your giving will be effective if it's focused on something that's of interest to you and targeted at an agency or an NGO that has said this is a territory we operate in and we and we can spend roughly so and so money on these services but beyond that if you're not interested in what we do place your generosity elsewhere if we can establish that sort of dialogue or understanding of the community i guess it would be a very good thing i think it is it's a very interesting idea michael lifman thank you for your time in our philanthropy australia podcast today thank you nick